Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome to the ESG Influencers Leading Transformative Change podcast, which is a part of MoFo Perspectives. This podcast features our monthly conversations launched in conjunction with BSR, which provide insight from various ESG leaders on how they are leading transformative change to help build a more sustainable future. Our guests will include leaders from both private and public companies, as well as social enterprises, impact investors, NGOs, and standard-setting organizations, each of whom is committed and has been committed for decades to getting it right as it relates to ESG. Good morning or good afternoon to everybody. I'm Suze McCormick, partner at Morrison and & Forrester, and I'm global chair of our ESG, Social Enterprise, Impact Investing and Energy Practices here at MoFo. And I'm very excited to be here today for the very first episode of our conversation series with BSR. This is intended to be an educational series, and it will focus on how businesses and investors and NGOs can drive business value and real impact, credible change, avoiding greenwashing, and really seeing around corners to prepare what's coming next in the ESG space. Just as background, for those of you who don't know me, but I, I have been focused on this space actually since a lunch with Aaron in 2001, we'll come back to that. But when the dot-com bubble burst in 2001, I had become a partner and I found myself with quite a bit of time between deals. And as I often say, I took the red pill, particularly on climate, but I saw environmental sustainability and realized that business was going to have to fundamentally change and came back to the firm and have been committed to working with clients on positive impact ever since as it has expanded to human rights, diversity, equity, inclusion, and all of the wide range of ESG elements. But today we're not gonna be talking about me. We are here with a true leader in this field, Aaron Kramer. Aaron is recognized globally as a preeminent authority on just and sustainable business. In addition to leading BSR, which has grown considerably since his tenure. He counsels and advises BSR's 330 member companies, as well as other global business partners on a full spectrum of environmental, social, and governance issues. Aaron joined BSR in 1995 as the founding director of its business and human rights program. He later opened BSR's Paris office and became president and CEO in 2004. He has served on advisory boards, advising CSOs of companies like AXA, Barrick Gold, Marks and Spencers, Nike, SAP, Shell, as well as the ERB Institute at the University of Michigan. He's a director of the We Mean Business Coalition, the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance, and serves as a member of the steering committee for the World Economic Forum. I will say that he started his career, he's a trained lawyer as an associate, a litigation associate here at Morrison and Forrester. And it was actually over lunch with me in 2000 that Aaron actually suggested to me that business could be a force for good. And that conversation and that lunch changed my entire trajectory. So it is a real honor to be here with Aaron. I'm gonna start with some questions for Aaron to kind of set the stage really define what we are talking about today when we talk about ESG and impact, and then to provide some very useful, concrete advice for companies and investors, whether they are leaders or just exploring the space for the first time. About 30, 40 minutes in, I will be taking questions. So if you have a question, feel free to put it in the Q&A, and I will try to get to as many questions as possible in the last 15 or 20 minutes. So Aaron, it would be great to start with some brief background and scene setting. BSR is the gold standard in providing strategic advice to companies on integration of ESG to improve operations, reduce risk, enhance profitability, and collaborate. And you've been at it since 1995. So as BSR celebrates its 30th anniversary, can you basically just describe the BSR model and how you work with companies and investors? 
Sure. Thanks, Suze. And yes, Suze has been a great friend and colleague. She's also my boss. She serves on our board. And I would say that if if I had walked into Morrison with Suze pursuing the practice that she is, I might still be there. Who knows? There were not such opportunities in those days. Morrison was a great firm when I was there, continues to be an amazing place. So mutual admiration society here. Yeah. So BSR, we are a nonprofit global business network and consultancy. As Suze mentioned, we have over 300 member companies. We historically have worked more with large companies, but one really interesting aspect of the last few years is that we've begun to work more and more with younger high growth companies. I'm not using the U word unicorn, but younger high growth companies. In fact, Susan and I worked on a project last year on the IPO for Allbirds, where they laid out some principles in their in their regulatory fire, filings related to ESG. We have a team of about 200 people. We work from 11 locations in the US, Europe, and Asia. Our membership is about, our member companies, about half come from the US, about 35% from Europe, and about 15% other parts of the world, but primarily Asia. So that gives a sense of our footprint. We work on a broad range of issues and a holistic view of sustainability or just and sustainable business is something that we believe in strongly. So if you hear the word sustainability, it might be easy to conclude that that's about the environment or climate. In fact, The Economist magazine a few weeks ago said we should drop the S and the G and just focus on E and just focus on climate. We don't believe that. Actually, I think these issues are integrally related. You can't think about economic advancement and social well-being if you don't have a strong approach on climate. You can't have a strong approach on climate if you don't think about how it impacts different communities, people, different genders, etc. So we take an integrated view of those things. We really do three things in serving our member companies. So provide insight. We operate something called the Sustainable Futures Lab, where we do scenarios for companies looking at how the world and the world of business is changing. We provide advice, strategic advice, ranging from boards and the C-suite, and then getting out and getting our hands dirty, sometimes quite literally working in palm oil plantations across Indonesia to look at how supply chains are evolving. And then collaboration, very important to us, helping companies achieve more systemic change. The issues that we wrestle with are things that, of course, a single company can and should work on. Of course, Leadership, individual business leadership is important. Of course, turning sustainability leadership into business advantage is important. But at the end of the day, collaborative solutions are really important when it comes to questions like human rights, when it comes to really decisive climate action, work on nature, and so on. So insight, advice, and collaboration, those are the three core elements of what we do. Well, thanks. And it's key. You are one of the nonprofits with the deepest bench in this space. And I know you end up sort of competing with the larger consultancies, but quite frankly, you've been doing it a lot longer and with a lot more credible results. So, you know, actually when we had been planning this series, I was thinking about avoiding greenwashing, but really it is about credibility. It's doing this in a way that advances the business goals. So it's integrated with operations, but also really does have impact. It doesn't just sort of look good when you're sort of telling the story. And that is what is core to VSR's values in terms of how it approaches client engagement. But can you also help set the stage? This is the first. And, you know, when you started and then I joined you eventually in this space, you know, there's a lot of talk about double and triple bottom line. There was talk about sort of CSR and then environmental sustainability was something slightly separate. Eventually it all sort of coalesced under ESG, but that's very distinct from sort of CSR and impact. Can you help take us through how the definition of ESG has changed over time? Sure. And, you know, there's a ton of jargon, you know, having practiced law for five years, I used to think that lawyers had a lot of terms that only lawyers understood. I think sustainability people may outdo lawyers when it comes to that. But in any event, I think the broad concept that we're talking about has absolutely changed. So quite frankly, when BSR got started, as you say, 30 years ago, and when I joined three years later, it was about risk mitigation reputation and often relegated to public relations. And those things are important. I don't discount those things. It's important for a company to have a set of values and to be able to represent that in the world. And risk management's really important. So I don't diminish the value of those things. However, there has been a sea change. And here's the best way I can put it. Things that used to only be a subject of the sustainability report are now very often in 
the financial reporting that a company does. And some of that is because regulations are changing, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But some of it is because there's a more sophisticated understanding now that a company's approach to climate is seriously material to their business success. That if we have natural ecosystems that are diminished, that companies that rely on natural resources for inputs to their products are, are not going to be able to thrive. That if a company is not addressing DEI issues effectively, that its ability to attract and retain the best employees and also customers is going to be diminished. So we've seen in some ways the, the slow but steady and actually now accelerating march of these issues from the periphery to the center of business. And that's the biggest change that I have seen. And I think it's high time. I think that the world is changing really fast. As we know, you know, that cliche is, and I think it's true that the world is changing faster than it ever has before. And it will never again be changing as slowly as it is right now, that the pace of change and including secular change inside business is very rapid. And so sustainability, it, it turns out, I think, is a proxy for effective management and governance of companies. That if you're thinking about the changing intersection of business and society, a company is likely to make better decisions, have stronger strategies, be more resilient, and resonate more with employees and customers. I think that's and, exactly and right. Investors, and investors. Yeah, and investors. I think it's exactly right because, you know, one of the things I, I have been surprised about is that boards don't, from a governance perspective, prioritize really seeing around corners because, you know, 15 years ago, cyber and privacy, nobody was thinking about them. I will say, you know, 10 years ago, I would occasionally been asked, you know, am I breaching my fiduciary duties or, you know, people assumed and why I wanted to do the definition, people assumed there was this offset because corporate social responsibility viewed as the good stuff on the side you know, if you focus on it, there will be a reduction in your revenue because you're doing something good as opposed to driving business. That leads me to, I think, a key definition that it's good for people to understand, particularly when we hear a lot of criticisms of ESG, which is the difference between ESG and impact. And they are different. I would argue that companies and investors need to focus on both. And regulation is coming. If you look at the EU and SFDR, if you want to see around the corners, you're going to be required to in a couple of years, but now making sure that you understand the difference and are focused on both. Aaron, can you address that? Sure. First, let me try to slay what I think is a myth that is being propagated right now. And there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal several days ago from William Barr, who before he was attorney general, was general counsel at Verizon, and Jed Rubenfeld, who's a somewhat controversial law professor at Yale saying that ESG, in fact, is a violation of fiduciary duty. Let me try to put that to rest. Not everything is a win-win. I think we need to acknowledge that. But ESG is a means to understanding strong stewardship and value creation and risk management for a company. So to argue that somehow these things are not only inconsistent, but directly in conflict, I think is a severe misreading of how the world actually works. So I mentioned before, you know, various ESG factors to be considered that are very directly relevant to business. And as you say, Suze, because of regulatory steps and it's local, it's national, it's global, it's multi-layered. That's actually a real complexity for business because there's so many different standards and initiatives, you know, sitting here in California, where the phase out of the internal combustion engine is coming very rapidly shows the power of what could be considered a local regulation. Although, of course, California is the fifth or sixth biggest economy of the world, you know, is not exactly the city of Yuma, Arizona. You know, that's truly local. It's pretty big, but it's significant. So ESG is a means to an end. So ESG does not equal impact. I think ESG can be thought of as a way for a company to understand the issues that are most important to it understand the levers that it has to push, understands the risk it has to manage on the pathway towards impact. So if you look at your company's operations and strategies through the lens of ESG, you're going to figure out, well, what is our climate strategy? What is our water strategy? So it's a way to think about business, but then companies have to get after it and have impact by reducing some companies to continue with the water analogy. Some companies aim to be water positive. That's good impact, especially in drought-stricken areas, which are 
a growing part of the world. The ASA human rights policy in the EU is putting in place human rights due diligence requirements, which are going to cover not only companies headquartered in the EU, but many, many more who operate in the EU. But then you have to put the human rights policy into practice. How is it working at a mine in Chile? How is it working in the apparel supply chain in Cambodia and Bangladesh? How does it relate to operating in environments very much including China and, of course, Russia and Ukraine, where human rights are under systematic threat. So ESG does not equal impact. It is a pathway to impact. Both are important. Considering a company's impact and from an investor and an operational perspective, thinking about the internal and then the external, both are important. As you know, I fall a little bit more on the conservative side of the spectrum. And when I read Bill Barr's article I think one of the reasons I wanted to set the terminology, some of this is definition. If you take 200 points or 200 factors that could be considered part of ESG, and I know you were very involved in standard setting leading up to the ISSB, which is the accounting uh, version of how we're going to measure and report, not all of the factors are material to operations for every company. It is different company by company. And so it is figuring out, again, your strategy of what you are reviewing for risk. Cyber is part of, you know, and having a good privacy policy. Some of it's dictated by regulation and some of it is risk mitigation and then some of it is really understanding where regulation is coming and where the world is shifting so that you are prepared for that. So that actually leads me to a series of op-eds you have written, Aaron, which I think are directly, obviously relevant here. You know, you've been describing the great fragmentation, how ESG has become polarized in a way, at least I didn't anticipate. You know, you mentioned a few minutes ago, we're living through a period of profound and accelerating change. Our world has been rocked by COVID, war, social conflict, rollback of rights and democracy, and now high inflation and either risk or actual recession. And these movements have really jolted, you know, business and investment. How are these and what are these factors that are accelerating the great fragmentation And how is the political backlash impacting sort of the implementation of ESG as a means to not just have impact, but also just mitigate risk and accelerate growth and running of good businesses? So I joined Morrison Force in 1989. So think about in the fall of 1989, when the Eastern Bloc was crumbling. If you think about the period from then until recent times, businesses have the wind at its back quite frankly. Globalization on the march, technology has enabled efficiencies and productivity gains. Politically, market economies were seen as the way to organize our societies. That era, frankly, has now ended. It's not 100% clear what comes next. However, there are many forces of fragmentation. I think the majority of the people on this webinar are based in the US. We know that political polarization is very strong. So that's one element. We see also the fragmentation of the global system. You know, one world, two systems, as some people put it, with the US and Western model and a Chinese model, more of a top-down model doing battle. And we see that playing out with illiberal regimes and so on here in 2022. There is cultural change and the backlash against cultural change. And so the drive for equity, inclusion, and justice, the wake of the murder of George Floyd, the Me Too movement, a lot of calls for social progress, badly needed, and also, quite frankly, a bit of a backlash. Climate, interestingly enough, is also a source of fragmentation. It's not only a debate over what to do, it's the second and third order effects of things. So the refugee crises, migration debates in both the US and Europe have been shaped by climate. Some of the most stressed places in the world when it comes to climate are in Central America. Lo and behold, we have a lot of people wanting to come north. That's created an intensified political debate. Same in Europe. You know, Syrian civil war was sparked by a terrible drought. So that's playing a role. Obviously, technology plays a role. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole. In fact, there's a great, I think, a great blogger podcast by Kevin Roos from New York Times called Rabbit Hole about exactly this. And then the last thing I would say is we're all retreating to our own corners about what we think the most existential issue of the day is. So 
For me, it's the decline of democracy. For me, it's climate. For me, it's racial equity. All of those things are really important. But if we think everything is an existential issue, there's no way you build social consensus. So this isn't a political seminar. What does this mean for business? Well, this is an incredibly complicated environment for businesses to navigate. And just look at the overruling of Roe versus Wade and what do businesses do? They make decisions, speak out. They may well alienate significant portions of their employee base, their customers, political figures on whom they rely. So businesses are being forced to make a lot of these choices. The rules are being made in a lot of different places. Again, California, United States, Europe, let alone, as you said, the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is an effort to create a global benchmark for reporting and disclosure. So business in some ways is on an island where the tide's rising, the winds are blowing, and it's very hard to know how and where the center will hold. That creates the kind of uncertainty that businesses hate. And it is not possible for business to avoid these things. This is just the way the world is working right now. People talk about the term of VUCA world, volatile, uncertain. I forget what the C in the A are. Maybe you can help me out, Suze. But it's a changeable operating environment where businesses have to both deliver the goods today because the economy is punishing. We haven't even talked about inflation, energy crisis, et cetera, but also the need to think long-term. So the world is pulling apart at the very time we need to come up with solutions to shared challenges. And that is, I think, it doesn't give you the answers, but I think it helps to frame the way we think about these things. And I think any business that doesn't consider how these factors are affecting them is missing something that is hugely important. And it's missing something that can really affect in addition to impact, you know, bottom line revenue and and operations. And going back to the Bill article, or as you know, my true north is climate, you know, you look at what's happening in Pakistan, and with a third, you know, of the country underwater, the displacement that's going to have, if I can take it down just purely to business, if you are a company operating in the US, and you have operations in Pakistan, or you have a manufacturing site in Pakistan, purely evaluating the risks associated with the physical threats of climate, that's just risk assessment. That's not good or bad. That's not liberal. It's just, it's purely understanding these risks and then understanding what's coming next. And as you said, you know, I think we're going to have the largest mass migrations since the Black Plague. Again, you can debate when that's going to happen or how bad that's going to be because it's already started. You can't debate if, but you should be factoring in what are the risks of that to your business? And then what are your impacts? And some of that, the regulation is coming. There is legal liability. But I hear you talk about, and a lot of these that we're discussing are headlines. And we talk about the great fragmentation. You, Aaron, talk about sort of headlines versus history for a company thinking about governance, thinking about how they can try to make history as opposed to just addressing the headlines. What is some advice? Well, let me start with a very practical example of a model that's emerged, I think, is hugely valuable. It was driven by attention to climate, but in fact, is a very valuable tool for businesses. So the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which was launched at COP21 by Michael Bloomberg and the then president of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, creates a model whereby companies conduct scenario analysis of their exposure to transition risk and physical risk related to climate. This tool, and we at BSR, we've done these scenarios for companies. These are incredibly valuable tools to help companies understand where their businesses are at risk from a changing climate. And, you know, in some cases that my colleagues at BSR know firsthand, these have led to changes in a company's core business strategy. So there's a power producer on whose behalf we conducted these scenarios. They took the decision at board level because of these scenarios to accelerate a shift towards renewable energy in their portfolio. And I think they would say today, this was done three years ago, they would say today that they got ahead of climate change, but they also got ahead of regulation. And of course, being ahead of change is a core business attribute. Good businesses do that. And so that's an example. And we now have the task force on nature-related financial disclosures. And I would argue that the model that's used 
is equally relevant for social questions. And, you know, some of the tech companies that have been mired in controversies over technology and privacy and human rights and so on, we do a lot of work at BSR, we do a lot of work there as well, I think would have benefited from doing similar kinds of scenario analysis at board level to help understand changing expectations. So what this speaks to is the need to understand and act upon the notion at C-suite level, at board level, that the fundamental underpinnings of our economy are changing and you can get caught out in some pretty significant ways if you don't stay ahead of that. So there are tools that are emerging. And this, again, this is where I think the things that used to be in the sustainability report are now in the core corporate report. That is only accelerating. And, and those are some specific examples of tools that are being used at the most senior level inside companies to help shift thinking, shift strategy, shift capital investment, shift procurement strategies, you know, all the things that are core business activities and have been since the dawn of time, but now have to be thought about in a very different context. And that helps all of those are tools, as, as you say, that help companies move from the headlines to history. It's like they're going to be evaluated, not just next with their quarterly earnings, but, you know, two, five, 10 years down the road. And it really helps. Well, let's go back to this question. So these are tools mainly for management. From your perspective, what does good governance look like at the board level? And then I'll get to the CSO and the integration. So, you know, if you're addressing these issues, you may be wherever you fall in the political spectrum, but you recognize that some factors of ESG are key material to operations. What are some of the things a board should be doing? And one of the things that's been really interesting at BSR is our direct engagement with boards of directors has been increasing very, very steadily as more and more boards recognize that these are not academic questions. These are questions that are core to, again, their fiduciary responsibility. So it starts with board composition. I think boards have, you know, we talk about diversity on boards and gender and race and national origin. Those are all very important, but so is diversity of perspective and expertise because traditionally boards have considered finance, audit, et cetera, as core skills that boards need. Sometimes political risk analysis, that's factored in certainly, but I think by and large, most members of boards of directors do not come with great depth of knowledge on ESG. And this is borne out by surveys. We've seen several surveys from the PWCs and Accentures of the world that very consistently say boards recognize that this is more important. And when in their heart of hearts, they know they don't know enough to fulfill their responsibilities effectively. So composition of board is a place to start. Board education is another place to go. We've been working with the NACD, you know, the leading resource for directors in the United States on educational programs on climate and ESG more generally. So I think some board education is really important. Changing a little bit of what boards actually do is important. Who do they hear from? And some boards are very good. We've worked with a number of boards who will bring us into brief on a particular issue, human rights, climate, water. So recognizing the limits of expertise, no board is ever going to have all the kinds of expertise that it could possibly need. Experts are valuable. So bring in experts. Related to that, the use of advisory boards can be quite valuable. Mm -hmm. And with a defined link between the governing board and an advisory board, I've served on several of them. One company where I chaired the advisory board, there was a member of the board who was also an independent director of the governing board. And she said to me during one meeting, these meetings are far more interesting and valuable than our formal board meetings because we're not as constrained by regulation about what we talk about and how. So we can go down various paths that help bring learning in. So there's that's where the soft governance model of an advisory board can augment the performance and the knowledge base of a formal board. And then, of course, setting targets and holding management accountable. And we're getting tons of requests for insight about, well, how do you tie compensation long-term, short-term for senior executives to performance on sustainability. It's not that simple. Like many things about executive compensation are not that simple. This is another one, but I think boards do need to include this and more and more that is becoming the norm. So it's really a full suite of steps from composition to activities to accountability mechanisms. Then those are not new topics for boards. Again, I think that's sort of 
None of this is fundamentally new. It's sort of new wine in an old bottle, if you want to think about it that way. I mean, these are core activities that boards have always undertaken, but with a different lens and different context. And one thing I often get asked at the board level, should we have an ESG or an impact committee? You know, I give a typically lawyerly answer. It depends. You know, I find companies that are getting up to speed, it may make sense to have a dedicated committee. Most companies I work with, it's not because you relegate it to that committee. And in fact, it is a core part and function of the governance committee, the comp committee, as you mentioned, the finance committee, an audit, because a lot of this is included within financials and impact financials. So the tools are all there. How they're applied is interesting. Let's go to the next level down and something I know you and I have both been watching, which is the role of a chief sustainability officer. 20 years ago, there were a handful now most companies have them and investment firms now and asset managers have a head of ESG. Unpack what makes a successful CSO or head of ESG at a fund. I know there are certain lessons that you've learned in working with these. How can that person really help their company achieve impact? Yeah, it's a great question. And the role looks very different now than it did five years ago. So I think historically, until the last few years, the chief sustainability officer, head of sustainability, whatever you call it, was a translator of the outside world into business. It was the person who would go out and present a happy face or an open-minded ear to NGOs. And that's still important. Again, that's not unimportant. But more and more, this is a role that has business relevance. And so that means understanding the link between sustainability and innovation is really important. It means understanding the link between sustainability and, as I said earlier, capital investment, really important. It's as much about a top line as it is generation, as it is about risk management. That's one way it's changed. The, the chief sustainability officer is moving up in the corporate hierarchy. It's undeniably the case. They more often report to the CEO, COO, CFO, general counsel. Those are the models that we see most frequently and far less often reporting into the head of public affairs or chief communications officer. You still see that in some cases. And as with boards, I give the same lawyerly answer. We get asked all the time, what's the right organizational model? And I say it does depend, but the person needs to have sufficient seniority, sufficient lines into the core decisions that a company is making to have the kind of impact and to capture the value that a person can bring. The other thing I would say is that we're seeing a lot fewer hires from the outside into the chief sustainability officer role. And I think more and more companies are saying, we want to elevate someone from inside the company who knows our business. And you know, sometimes if they're being really honest, they'll say, well, someone can learn sustainability more easily than they can learn our company. And I think that's really interesting and really telling about how the role is evolving. So it's a business partner, not you know someone to say, "Hey, boss, there's you know green pieces at the door, and boy, are they angry." You know that still happens. And I think communication skills remain very, very important. But the stakes have risen. As a senior person at one very well-regarded company put it to me, said, "You know, five years ago, my hardest conversations were with NGOs. Now they're with investors. So you need a chief sustainability officer." who can speak to investors and explain, well, why is it important for us to make this investment in clean energy? Why is it important for us to speak out on women's rights? Why is that not a sideshow? Why is that not interfering with our fiduciary responsibility? So it's just, you know, whatever that Disney movie was, it's a whole new world. It is. And what we worked with corporate counsel a couple months ago and actually did a survey of about 500 in-house counsel. You know, five years ago, probably 20% of them would have said ESG was on the radar because I, I worked with a lot of them now. It was almost 100%, which I thought was interesting. On the comp, 80% of them said that they were tying comp to some ESG metrics. Again, I think it's more subjective. Again, we need to get into more objective standards. I worry a little, and I know for a fact, and a lot of law firms as well view ESG purely from a compliance lens. So these are the regulations. This is how you can comply. I think if you do that, you do run the risk of not being able to see around corners and being caught out on a whole variety of levels because this space, some of it is regulatorily driven. A lot of it is not, but that does not change the risk profile at all. So there's a couple of good questions in the Q&A, which I'm going to come to. I'm going to just ask Aaron two more questions quickly, and then we'll go into the Q&A. A question I 
I get asked a lot, you know, when I started 25 years ago and you were further than that, to me, there were only like five people I knew that were viable, you know, to advise companies on these issues. Now there are 500 and it is very difficult for me to separate from the wheat from the chaff. How do you advise companies? You know, you provide a suite of services, but how do you advise people to kind of separate between all of the various consultants out there? Well, first, let me cop to self-interest in answering this question because we do offer these services. But I think, look, that said, I welcome the fact that there's so many people getting involved in ESG. I think it's the only way that we can see progress. And my objective in a given day is not to say how much of the market share can BSR control. I want to see change happen. And, and that requires everyone you know, uh, across every business, across every, you know, business, government, civil society, et cetera. That's what we need collectively. And that's ultimately good for business as well. What I can say is here's how we try to position ourselves. Number one is we focus on impact in everything we do. And that's because we think that's most valuable for business and for the world. We are a business-oriented entrepreneurial organization with a social purpose. And so we aim for impact. Number two, we try to see the connections across issues because they're very important. You can't understand any of these issues in a vacuum. And so helping companies understand, if I'm looking at my supply chain, well, I need to understand climate, water availability, labor, labor issues, the potential for human trafficking, corruption in a given location. You need to see across all of those issues because very often they're related. The third thing is very honest advice for the most credible outcomes possible, because we believe that is what is in our member companies and our consulting clients' interests. We're not here to play back what people want to hear. And without naming any names, I think we do see that happening in the marketplace. And I don't think it really serves anyone's purpose except for those who are trying to secure a consulting contract. So that's how we try to distinguish ourselves. There are a lot of great organizations out there. I think companies are well advised to figure out what fits best for them. There are choices between full service organizations, organizations that can throw an army of people at a project and so on. But I think impact, connections, and credibility, those are things that are crucially important. That's what we try to provide. Yeah, as I said, I think the mistake I've seen being made by many of our clients is number one, just viewing this from a regulatory compliance perspective, because you miss about two thirds of it. Number two, Many of our clients engage one set of consultants on human rights issues, one on climate, a different one for, you know, they already have one for anti-money laundering, anti-bribery in the investigation, and that will cause real issues for an organization. And so having the integrated approach is important. My last quick question, then I'm going to go to a couple of the audience questions. I do want to touch on regulation because we've got COP coming you know, to the extent that leads to regulation. We've got new regulations, disclosure regulations coming out of the SEC. We've got new regulations coming from the government that provide opportunity in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act. Just a couple thoughts on the changing landscape or regulatory overlay. Yeah, it's coming and it's coming fast and it's coming on a lot of different bases. What I say about compliance, similar to what you're saying is, it's very effective in raising the floor. I worry a little bit that it's going to lower the ceiling. So I think companies should, you you know, compliance by definition is not an optional thing. You've got to follow it. But know also that these regulations, as significant as they are, are coming more slowly than the world is changing. And so I think compliance with regulation is yet another example of necessary but not sufficient. And I think it's really important for companies to think about it in that way. And that's harder. I, I want to be realistic. That means you've got to work hard to get in compliance with a number of new standards, but also know that it's not going to stop there. Skate to where the puck is going, as they say. The Inflation Reduction Act is partly compliance, but as many people have said, it's actually more about carrots than sticks. And I think there's a huge business opportunity. We're seeing lots of investment dollars flowing into clean energy and infrastructure and there's huge opportunity there. And I would say it will accelerate consumer uptake of climate-friendly things from you know vehicles to electrifying everything to shorthand. So it's really, really significant. And California on a per capita basis is actually spending more than the United States is. I think it's $55, $60 billion, something like that. So there's a lot of money flowing into the system. And we have to think about government not only as a regulator, 
but also now as an investor, really important, and then also as an agenda setter. And I think, frankly, that's why we're seeing some of the political pushback and backlash on things. A lot of people don't want to see that happen in the United States, but I think the direction of travel is clear. The only question is the pace of change, not the direction. Great. It leads me actually to one of our questions in the chat, a chance for a little bit of education. And the question is that ESG has been criticized because it's not measurable. And the question is, how do you address the deficiency, but also it's compounded by their differences, all these different methodologies. And they mentioned SASB and GRI. Let me start with a little bit of education. SASB no longer exists. You know, the good news, and I want to see if Aaron agrees with me on the methodology side, is all of SASB, IRC, FD, everybody other than GRI has really aggregated under one umbrella called the ISSB, which was formed by the IFRS. It's a lot of acronyms, but you know, if you're not in the U.S. under GAAP, every other company around the world follows the International Financial Accounting Reporting Standards. So these are the accountants who are setting the rules and the standards. They are going to draw a lot on what SASB did. So I think there's a lot of cohesion and everybody's going to follow the ISSB for investors. And so I would distinguish, I think the investment world is all going to come under the ISSB and then regulation that is going to come under SEC. And then GRI is going to be for everything else because there are a lot of elements of ESG that, as I mentioned before, don't drive operations may not be related to financial and still good to measure. But Aaron, would you agree with that? I do. And I think the good news here is I think we are moving inexorably towards a harmonization of reporting and disclosure standards. Still going to take some time. It's not going to be done immediately. It's not going to be perfect. But I think we will get there. I think there is the political will to get there. And so I'm optimistic. I'm more optimistic than I've ever been about that happening. And I think it's really valuable. You are right, Suze, without getting too wonky into this, the concept of double materiality is really important. And so I think we're going to see the ISSB defining what ESG issues are material to business from an investor's perspective, a financial perspective, and the GRI depending on how it evolves, is going to remain important, providing a materiality lens in terms of impact for society. So both are needed. If you use the dialogue we have with our member companies as a proxy for where the market is going, I'd say 90%, maybe more of companies we talk to about materiality are focusing on a double materiality model. And so I think that's recognition of exactly what you just said, Suze. Define double materiality for those who don't know what it means. Yeah, I mean, it, the simplest way to put it is there's a materiality model that looks at what is material for a company in traditional financial sense. So how is climate material to my business? How are human rights in my supply chain material to my business? How are my representations on ESG to my customer base in a B2C environment material to business? And they all are. So that's financial materiality with an ESG lens. Then there is what is relevant to society in terms of my business. And not everything that's relevant to society is going to be financially material. What I would say about that is just because it's not financially material doesn't mean it's not material for a business because these things, you know, can take on a life of their own. Also, I think if you look back at the 30 years BSR has been in operation, many things that were material to society first end up being material to a business. And so the social impact, half of the double materiality can be seen as a way to understand what is going to be financially material in the future. And in that regard, it's very, very important. The simplest way to put it is what's financially material, what's societally material. Yeah. And as I mentioned, ISSB is sort of on the first and then the regulation that will come out of the SEC. And on the second, you have GRI and, and quite frankly, B Labs as well, the B Corp. So they're both good. But the good news for companies and investors is we're getting more crisp on what we're going to measure, how we're going to measure and how we're going to report. Another question came in from the audience complimenting you on describing the forces of fragmentation. But going out to your point on, you talked about there being tools to allow companies to really make informed decisions, some of those being data. Can you elaborate a little bit more on where our audience, most of whom is, almost all of whom have stuck with us through this, can access those tools? Well, thanks for the kind words. And, and I would say for some of the things we've touched on that are in BSR blogs, you can find them on our website, 
www.bsr.org. Yeah, there's a gold rush on. And Sue's, you know, we've talked about this a number of times and you've been very involved in a number of things. There's a gold rush on right now to create new data tools to help companies have greater visibility into their impacts, the impacts through their supply chains, et cetera. There are a lot of great providers. The next in this series, we're going to hear from Tim Moen at Persephone, which is is one that's doing a lot of really, really good work. I think we're going to see the dust settle. I think ideally, you know, we, we need comparability there. And I think my hunch is it's going to end up a little bit like the tech sector did or the automobile industry did 100 years ago. We're going to have many flowers blooming in the garden for a while. And then eventually, I think probably businesses are going to align around certain models that they can use in a way so that there's interoperability and so on. But we also know that technology changes very, very fast. And, you know, so the Googles of the world are making the world visible in new ways that, you know, for example, on methane, and this is one where a shout out to EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, they've been leading in providing some technology to help us see methane emissions, which are don't get as much attention as they should. So technology has a lot of different use cases. I think we're moving very, very rapidly, but I think it's going to be kind of a messy environment for a few years for companies. And that's hard because you have to put systems in place and you don't know if there's a disruptive technology that comes in three years down the road, you don't want to rip up everything you're doing. So I think this is a tough one. But again, here again, it speaks to where this is coming into the boardroom. So the chief information officer, chief technology officer needs to be at the table. The chief sustainability officer needs to be talking to the CTO or CIO in order to help a company make good decisions. So it's a great example of how sustainability is growing up, right? Like no longer just a really promising teenager, but I think maybe a PhD candidate or a junior executive or something like that. So lots of promise there, but again, I think pretty, pretty messy and probably will be for a while yet. And a lot of it is, as you mentioned, we are we are going to have Tim Mohan, who was formerly head of sustainability at Apple, Intel, AMD, head of GRI. He is now at Persephone. He will be with us for our next session, a plug for our next ESG influencers session, talking about this, the need for good data. I teach a course now on climate finance and governance at Berkeley Law and Business School. And the first session I had was from a data scientist climate change experts from Berkeley on the business side who believes that most of the data we're relying on is just wrong. You know, we've, we've got to get good and better data. Then you've got to separate the data that is actually relevant. And then you've got to make concrete decisions based on that data. And if sustainability is in graduate school, I would say that the data mining aggregation and then reporting is back in elementary school. So we have a long way to go, but the good news is there's a lot of investment that is being made there. Just a quick anecdote. I spoke to a partner at another law firm who was making the point about how general counsels want data, data, data. And I, I said, that's great, really important. For what purpose? And this person who was advertised as being prominent on ESG, this is proving that Susan Morrison have a leg up here in, in many ways. He literally couldn't answer the question. And so, you know, you wouldn't do that in any other part of your business. You know, I need data on customers, but I don't know how I'm going to use it. I need data on my employees, but I don't know how I'm going to use it. it. It's a non sequitur. So I think things are still a little bit immature. And I think it speaks to the risk that we use data for compliance purposes, but not for business value purposes and not for impact purposes. And understanding this is where the intersection, when you have a silo, you have one person working on your climate data and another person on cyber privacy. It's also, you know, there are a lot of privacy rules about what you do with that data. So if you yeah. want data and the gain integrated approach, you are, as a company, you are going to need data on your suppliers related to their bribery practices, related to their climate, related to their human rights. You're going to need that purely for compliance. How you handle that data, treat that data, and then use that data for decision-making and then reporting is actually very linked with, with this is why internally you've got to have it all, all linked up. Just, Aaron, this has been fabulous. Before we wrap up, just a final question in terms of what next. And I want to pose it as, what do you see as the biggest challenge? We've already covered data, the biggest challenge for companies in ESG and where should they be focusing? One of the big issues here is a lot of companies want to focus, but the cost and the breadth of ESG is just so daunting. Like the area of biggest risk and then the area where you think companies 
should be focused most for the next couple of years? Let me cite two things that are very different. So the first is intensely practical and operational, which is scope three emissions and water use and natural resource use. That's where the greatest impact is. And that's where we don't have good information. Supply chains are notoriously opaque. And most companies now have scope three targets, but when they're honest, they'll say, we don't really know how to measure it, let alone influence it. So that would be one. A very different issue. I worry a lot about the potential collapse of democracy and rule of law. And this is, again, this is not a political question. This is very relevant for business. It's hard to dive into this in an environment that's very polarized for all the obvious reasons. But I don't think businesses want to wake up one day and find that rule of law is not being sustained, that democratic processes are not being sustained. It hurts them directly, but also indirectly, because it means that faith in large institutions will collapse and social consensus is not possible and no business wants to operate in that kind of environment. So one practical, one a little bit more ephemeral, but I think both supremely important for businesses. And very important for businesses to recognize that, again, right now, it's good for their business to focus. It will be a requirement. Again, going back to seeing around the corner, if you go to the SFDR in the EU and look at Articles 8 and 9, they're, you know, when you opt in, they're going to require investors and companies to ensure that they, this goes back to ESG versus impact, to ensure that they're not causing any significant harm. So if you're in tech, that means you need to be thinking about your impact on democracy and lawyers are not focused enough on ethical tech. I view that as kind of the next scope three emissions. We're all going to figure out scope three emissions for the next five years that everybody's going to go, oh crap, you know, how do we evaluate and, and measure and have a policy and then enforce ethical tech? So, well, I just want to thank Aaron Kramer and Aaron, you're not only the reason I am in the space, you have been a leader for 25 or more years in the space at a time when it wasn't trendy and popular, really showing people how to embrace ESG in a very credible way and have positive impact. So on behalf of all of us, thank you for all the work that you do and the work BSR does. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it and huge gratitude for your leadership and support as well. Suze is making a lot of change happen in a lot of very important places. And you've been doing it for a while now too, Suze. So congrats. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts. 